All right. Welcome. It's Jeff Mayhew. It's John Beatty. It's Politics and Parenting, where we talk about politics, but we talk about it differently. John, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well, Jeff. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Uh, you have a good week? That was a great week, yeah. But yeah. That was crazy busy. We're recording on Monday, so it was crazy busy yesterday, but um, yeah. it's been good. It's been good. Did you notice that Christmas morning breakfast was a little bit more this year? Did I ever? No, we had to go to the grocery store. And uh, I don't know. I mean, like, for one, the cost of eggs, or just getting eggs has been tricky. Like, we went to Costco two weeks ago, and they didn't even have eggs there, which is crazy to think about because there's this avian flu. But I had to get um, uh, just eggs for, yeah, for breakfast. And it was like seven bucks for a dozen and a half eggs. Um, and, you know... We've got chickens, but I hadn't set up the um, heat lamp because it just, I figured like the cost of electricity to heat them would be a lot more than whatever the eggs were. But at this point, I, I kind of wish I had figured out my electrical situation. Um, I mean, like, and uh, there's this interesting Wall Street Journal article I sent you. Did you, did you see that? Like the cost of everything has gone up this year. Um, <clears throat> butter, eggs, you know, like, you know, and of course everyone's like, oh, it's inflation and stuff. But the article made this point that um flat screen tvs have actually gone down and um now you could say well that's uh, that's amazing that's capitalism and economies of scale because chickens don't really scale well you know like <laughs> um and and uh cow, cows don't really scale well but you know chips do but I, that got me thinking about like business models and stuff because they don't mention this in the article but the business model for all these flat screen tvs is not um, necessarily selling you the TV. Like, I don't think they lose money on the TV, but it's actually selling your viewing habits right. because now they're all smart TVs that are connected to the internet. So they're just, they're tracking everything you, everything you watch. And then they're building this like data profile on you. And then they're selling that data profile. So I just thought it was a fun article. Cause it kind of goes back to like that cost of goods sold piece I'd written back in the summer. And then the data tracking, like, you know, somewhere, somewhere it was, you were pushing through buttons to set up your brand new TV on Christmas. Like you agreed to let um, these TV companies sort of look and see what you're um, streaming. And I've, I've read like some of them are more egregious than others where they're just almost taking like screen caps in order, and sending them up in order to do processing on what you're watching. But like, um, you know, it's just, it's just interesting. Like you can celebrate TVs being cheaper and that's great. Like our TV actually isn't connected to the internet just for this very reason. Uh, we use an Apple TV to, to do any streaming and stuff because um, I mean, a Apple's tracking a lot of things, but right. I, Apple's business model is selling devices for now. Well, uh, it's not selling uh, viewing habits. Well, and it, it's like, it's the hidden cost, right? Like everything mm -hmm. has a hidden cost in life. And <clears throat> and that's kind of what you're dealing with. with well, well, everything has a cost. It's whether or not it's a visible cost of like, it's $7 for 18 eggs now. And you just kind of like, you know, I need eggs for breakfast and bread making. Right. So I'll pay it up. Um, or it's a hidden cost. Of I get a cheaper TV, but someone's watching everything I watch. Right. Well, and it's it's that model is like the it's like your phone now. Like it's just mm -hmm. like that's the tool that you need to pay more money into the system, right? And yeah. so the 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 people that have the system, they're more than welcome to lower the price on the tool because they know they're going to get their money back on the back end, right? Like if they give yeah. you a cheap TV, you're more likely to use the subscriptions that you're buying, which means you're mm -hmm. more, more likely to keep paying those subscriptions as opposed to cancel them. If you get a cheap, you know, small TV and you're not using it, maybe you drop Paramount, maybe you drop uh, HBO, 
um, but you keep Netflix or whatever. But if you've got this mm -hmm. massive entertainment wing of your house and you've got mm -hmm. a lot of people in it. And so now you've got Paramount, you've got Netflix, you've got Hulu, you've got them all right. And they all kind of funnel into that media entertainment, you know, capitalist structure. Hollywood. Um, That's Hollywood. what they call it, Jeff. Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah, they're all kind of interconnected. Um, and so, yeah, they're willing to give you a cheaper cost. But I think the other part of that is they make them cheap now too. Like those TVs, the cheap mm -hmm. ones, like, yeah, the cost is greater. But if if they just put in like an extra like 40 bucks of parts, they would actually last longer too. So like they're they're, they're tricking you with a cheap device so they can you can get into the entertainment system thinking that they're giving you something you know, a value, but then you find out like two years later, you're like, oh, I should have paid like an extra $500 for my TV because it's already broken and I'm buying a new one. <laughs> yeah. No, at some one point we were burning TVs, mostly because the kids would mess with them. Like they died, like they were little toddlers and they pushed the screen and break it. Mm -hmm. um, but it, some of them just like failed. It was, it was kind of, um, you know, disheartening that uh, something that was, that's not cheap, you know, even if the price is going out, it's still not cheap. Like you, to feel like you got to buy one. So um, at some point we had, didn't have one for a little bit just to, to yeah. make that work. I, uh, when we moved into this house, I bought all new TVs, right? Cause we didn't have the space that we have now. And, uh, the TV that I have up in my bedroom is dying. It's got like lines all over it and nothing, nobody's touched it. No toddlers. It's up, you know, away from everybody. We don't even watch TV that often. So I'm just like, what is going on? And it's dying. And it's been, it's been two years. It's 2022. I bought them in 2020 and, you know, and I'm like, oh my God, am I going to have to buy another TV already? <laughs> And that's why they sell you the subscription or the the insurance. And it's like, mm -hmm. can't you just sell me a quality product instead of making me pay additional just in case the product that you made fails? Some financial, yeah, well, again, it's like some financial product, like they're getting a kickback somewhere along the way. Well, and that's exactly it too. It's it's a financial moneymaker for them. You know, it's not about the insurance they provide. It's not about service. It's about mm -hmm. how they can make money off of the poor product they give you <laughs> it's uh it's a product segmentation like it's uh there's a whole thing in economics about this like you want to charge you want to figure out the best business business is figuring out what someone will pay and charging them that exact price and that's like what college tuition is like they have the high sticker price and then they they figure out your they basically give them your whole financial history and then they can tailor the price in order to make it match what they think you'll be able to pay and you know that's um that's what they're doing with the with these service plans Right. And then, and then you you go all the way back and you've got, you got to cook Christmas morning and you've got the cost of eggs f went from like a dollar to seven and you've got, God, how many kids do we have? Right. Like that's a lot of money when you're a dollar to seven dollars for a, for a dozen of eggs is, is enormous. And you have this one epidemic where this bird flu, where they have to like, they killed like what, 45,000 uh, chickens off because of it because like so it doesn't spread or whatever and then that just tightens the market and now there's mm -hmm. a shortage on eggs and you know some of us wish we would have kept our eggs in our backyard That's at right. that point That's right, right? <laughs> uh, well it's like the, it's just it's a little side note like chicken biology like as soon as it's and it's really cool like as soon as the days start becoming uh shorter than the nights so pretty much the um vernal equinox um i would put a uh, a heat lamp out and it just it doesn't really keep them warm but it just gives them more light and that keeps them producing and it's it's like every time like, i had to learn this over a couple of years but like it's really cool um and so i haven't done that this year because i figured it wouldn't be worth it with just like seven chickens but 
you learn you learn to live or, yeah you know you learn. never know when that bird flu is gonna it's kind of like COVID. it just shows up out of nowhere <laughs> um so you know i did something interesting this week john i signed up for the twitter subscription plan right you're, you're helping that poor billionaire I am helping that poor billionaire out, you know, he's trying to make a buck and I'm like capitalism, baby, let's, let's, let's go. Um, so I think, you know, I think a subscription plan is, you know, good for people realistically, because what it does, is it takes the power out of the corporations and the advertisers mm -hmm. and it moves it down to the consumers, right? Because now yeah. where's Twitter's revenue coming from? Is it coming from a handful of advertisers or is it coming from a large body of subscription users? probably still advertisers at this point but the the point of it is is to move it to the consumers that's a good thing you know uh, overall would you say would you say this is democratizing uh twitter i you know maybe maybe <laughs> it is um but you know i talk a lot about elon and you know you it's not like i'm here to judge him i don't know him um i can't hmm. possibly but he does wield a lot of power in our society, and we have this show that we talk about power, so he gets talked about. And I don't try to be you know, negative or put him in a box. I'm just talking about what I see and my mm -hmm. expertise from watching other people like him. And uh, But I, I want to give him some credit here because some of the changes that he's made to Twitter, I think, functionally really good. You can You can see your tweet history now, or like you can make an edit to your tweet within 30 seconds. Um, if you sign up for the subscription plan, you get 30 minutes to make an edit to your tweet. And then, you know, you get to see how many people's actually seen your tweet, clicked on, clicked on your links. You get all that data up front. You can see how many people have seen other people's tweets too. So like, if you see this tweet, you know, and you get, it's got 20 views and you're like, well, that guy, you know, but it's got 6,500, you know, at least, you know, what people are looking at now. Yeah. Um, transparency. Wait, you know, wait can you see that for, for every tweet or just your tweets? every tweet you can see what wow. um how many how many times it's been viewed uh for every tweet now um and that that provides transparency this is a good thing what it, what was the problem with twitter lack of transparency right That's manipulation right. not really telling us the truth that makes the company not trustworthy what elon is doing is he's coming in and he's trying to he's trying to rehab the company and he's doing frankly a good job as you know i don't think people really want to admit that because he's kind of a jerk um <laughs> Well, it's like the Wizard of Oz. Like you just pull back the curtain, you see the man behind the machine. Like the whole thing with with uh, with Elon purchasing Twitter is it really has pulled back the curtain of what's going on, what the machinery behind it was. You know, you see people would say, well, there's people would say there was shadow banning. People at Twitter would say, well, we don't shadow ban, but it turns out that yes, maybe they don't shadow ban per se because they don't use that term, but they definitely use tools in order to manipulate how particular tweets, how people's Twitter uh, view was. And I think that's the coolest thing about this is that we're actually seeing the the shenanigans that were going on behind the scenes. Yeah. And, and you know, it's good and it's bad. Um, well, I guess it's more good than bad, but it's bad because you still have somebody that has that amount of power, right? Like that's who yeah. Elon is. Now, like he holds that power. He's He's come to the world and he said, look at all these bad people and look at how they were controlling you now it's mine, right? right? I own this and I'm going to do whatever I want to do. So, you know, of course, like, who am I? Like, I want to study the person. I want to know who is Elon. So what did I do? I picked up a book on him. That's the great thing go. about being nobody and studying somebody's is I get to know more about them than they'll ever know about me because nobody's going to write a book about me. <laughs> For now. And so I found it interesting because 
you know, I've compared him to Carnegie and uh, Ford and, you know, his personality type fits. I think that he's a little bit different. He's ideal idealistic from what I'm reading so far. He's a big proponent of going to Mars. Duh. Right. And, you know, obviously him and I have that in common. Um, I think that he, it sounds like he had a pretty rough childhood. Um, but I look at his life after that and I go, you, you know, you're kind of lucky, you know, he, how did he make all his money? He got $28,000 from his father and him and, his, him and his brother was doing a startup in Silicon Valley. They went around and they got investors, you know? So when he was starting up, he, he used somebody else's money to build this. Now I'm not knocking him. It's still difficult. Like, don't get me wrong, but I like to look at it from like my perspective there's no Silicon Valley uh, entrepreneurs or investors in like most towns. You have to be in Silicon Valley. So if you are an American citizen and you want opportunity to start a business, how do you do that? You go to a bank, right? Mm -hmm. Elon doesn't have to go to a bank. He's got the, he's in a different class. Um, I don't necessarily. Well, and there's also with the, the, with a bank too, like a loan, if it's all based on your personal, like you're still on the hook for that, even if the business goes bad, well, if yeah, it's an exactly. investment and the business goes and the business goes bad, like it's like, oh. 20,000 bucks. That's right. tough. Exactly. And, and so like a regular citizen has a harder time to get opportunity. And, you know, my thing with Elon from what I'm reading is, does he, is he aware of that? Like, is he really aware of how difficult it is to be like with the plebeians, you know, like down here? Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's some things in, uh, let me, I got a couple, um, page 49 here. Let me get or read something off of here. So this is early on in his relationship with his first wife, Justine. And I highlighted this in the book because it struck me immediately to the man behind the curtain, right? Like what is his mindset? Who is he? And how does his internal relationships work? And uh, she's talking about a paper that he got one notch above her. She got a 97, he got a 98. And she says, it felt like we were always competing. Now, some people might just glaze over that and go, yeah, he's a really tough guy. She's really successful. That's great. I don't necessarily know if it's great to compete with your wife, you know, or compete with the person, your spouse. I mean, it is maybe to a degree, but at, at some point you're not competing with each other. You're your team, your teammates, yeah, you're, you're yeah. working together. And if you find yourself competing with like, you know, your closest components, your spouse, your family members, there's going to create friction in those relationships and which, you know, they end up getting divorced. Um, but there's something big that happened as well along the way. Um, but uh, she's, let's see, she's talking about him again. And in this quote, she says, the man doesn't take, does not take no for an answer. And, you know, that is a personality trait that you find in, like I said, Carnegie Ford Musk, right? There's a reason yeah. they're, uh, they're so successful is because they're relentless. Like, they're just like, I'm not going to stop. Um, I mean, do you find that in relationships? Like, you, you know, as far as the competing aspect, you know, it's good in business, but do you really think you should do it with your spouse? I, well, as I wrote in my uh, Settlers of Catan post, like there's a friendly competition. Like my wife and I compete on some things, but I think at the end of the day, it's more just in jest and good fun rather than like, we have to prove that we're better than the other. I think, um, we kind of accept our strengths and weaknesses and try to accentuate and highlight that. Uh, um, and, 
you know, kind of realize that men and women have differences and there's complementarity. I think if you're going to compete with your wife, I think that your worldview is that you and she are identical in all aspects. And so it's just a matter of pure power, pure will, and trying to show that you're better than that, rather than marriage where you're understanding the complementarity and just realizing that uh, women and men definitely can't do the same things. Um, for instance, giving birth. Um, <laughs> just as, a, as, as at least one example of a minor. Just one example? I mean, I don't know. People might get upset at you for that nowadays. Uh, <laughs> um, I mean, yeah. And it's, so it's funny because, you know, the, the point that you're making is you're, you can never assume that you're the same. You have to assume that you, things are different. You don't know what you don't know. And mm -hmm. Elon kind of, he makes comments of these in, in some of these quotes that I have in here where he talks about, he, he was a very thorough reader as a child. Um, and part of the reason was, and, he, and there's a quote in here is he's like, you just don't know what you don't know. Right. Mm -hmm. And then later, I think he's talking about his, his first experience as a CEO. And he's talking about kind of how he mismanaged a little bit by pushing people and all these different things. And I think that was like maybe that over competition level, you know, realizing yeah. that it's good to compete to a degree, but you have to have an internal circle, a small circle that it's not necessarily competing, but it's like challenging one another at that point, as opposed to competing. It's not to win. It's so you can, as a group, get the best answer. Um but uh, so a lot of people think what he's doing is crazy uh, at Twitter. I've, I feel like he gets criticized a lot. And there was uh, there's one quote in here. Where is it here? So basically what they're talking about is. It goes, history has demonstrated that while Musk's goals can sound absurd in the moment, he certainly believes in them. And when given enough time, tends to achieve them, quote, he always works from a different understanding of reality than the rest of us. He's just different than the rest of us. And again, this reminds me so much of Henry Ford, Andrew Carnegie, right? Like people like this, mm -hmm. uh, their power, right? Like, and, and they will find a way. People like Must are like, we are here and we want to be here, find the solution. And the right. way that he does it. The way that he does it is he goes around and he finds really good people. He has a very strong base of knowledge across all things. And he walks in the door and he listens to those people. Like he finds people that he thinks he can trust and he listens to them. And then he challenges them to do better. And he pushes them and pushes them. Um, he doesn't walk in the door, or at least it doesn't appear so far from what I'm reading. He doesn't walk in the door and go, I know everything. Listen to me. He walks in the door and goes, what can you teach me? And listen to what I can teach you. And that's a, that's a symbiotic relationship when he's starting a company, but then he gets trapped in these long-term relationships where he's constantly competing, which causes friction, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, I don't know. Yeah, One example I've heard about on the engineering side is like the Teslas have a door handle that's supposed to pop out as you get closer. And someone did a teardown of like the original model that he worked on. And it was really, it was, they got it to work, but it was complicated and brittle and stuff, but they've kind of, it's the same um, feature where it just pops out but they've like totally re-engineered the inside because they learn through that process. And I, I can see that. And, uh, you know, Steve Jobs is the same way. Like you've got the, like you said, there's the one point that we're at, there's where we want to go. And I'm going to not really uh, make you, but I'm going to encourage you strongly to get to that point because I can see where, that we should get there. And it's good for the X, Y, and Z reasons. Um, and, you know, I know that you're the person that can do that. So I'm going to, I'm going to tell you you're the person to do that. And I'm going to expect you to get there. Um, and then I guess there's like a charisma aspect to it where 
um, you know, like they call it reality distortion field, but people kind of believe that that they someone could follow through with that and that they can actually make that a, an accomplishment. Yeah. I mean, they describe Musk as a little socially awkward at first, you know, a little shy, a little sheepish, but um, he tends to, you know, once he gets past that, he seems to be a very charismatic guy. Um, he, um, you know, he's, there's stories of kind of both good and leadership styles, you know, where mm-hmm. there's employees that are like, hey, he was ruthless and he was, he was cutthroat. And then there's stories of where he was like patient and kind. And I yeah. think that, <laughs> I think it's just, that's just life, right? Like I wrote about it in, um, in my article for uh, recently for the, it's a wonderful life about George Bailey. And I talk about like George Bailey is this great person, except when he thinks he's a failure. And then he's kind of, you know, he shows all his insecurities and they talk about in the book, there's a woman that's almost like his little pepper pots um, during his SpaceX days. And she would be able to read his moods, Elon's moods. And when he was in a bad mood, she'd keep people away from him. Right. And when he was in a good mood, you know, everything was fine and he was a great boss. Um, but when he was in a bad mood, it was probably when you got that lashing out, kind of like what George Bailey did. And mm-hmm. I noticed that about myself. Like I I noticed like, you know, if I'm having a, if I feel like a failure, I'm a little bit quick to temper. I'm a little bit not as rational. I've recognized that behavior. And I try to, I go to my wife and I go, hey, how do I get out of this? Help me, guide me, protect me, do whatever you can. Um, so I think it's, it's good that he's surrounded with himself with people that that can do that. Now, I just got past the SpaceX day, so I'm like 20 years behind at this point. So we'll see if that continues. Yeah. Um, but as far as like if you're an American citizen and you're going, should this guy have this power? The answer is unequivocally no. No one person should have as much power as he does. But is he the evil person that people might make him out to be? Probably not. You know, I think he's just an idealistic, really smart kind of arrogant jerk you know and that's okay like you can still be lovable and be a good person and be a jerk you know like i feel like i'm a jerk sometimes so <laughs> i think it's just because he's like you know he's on the wrong team of some people and said so they don't appreciate that um and not that he's on like one team or the other but i and i think based on what you said like he's and what we can see like he is very idealistic and i think he's just kind of he's running to his own beat right uh, but because he's not running to your beat, you say, well, he's not on my team and therefore he must be bad. And because everything is so two-part, like uh, binary. dualistic, binary, binary, um, you know, that just leads to like, well, he's not on my team, he's on the other team, when then maybe that's not the case. And I think that also leads to people saying, well, he's not on their team, so he must be on our team. And right. I think that's where we're at now. And I think it would be interesting to see over the couple of years, because you're right, no one should have this much power. And as it gets used it's going to make people upset. And right. It's just a matter of, of how much um, someone is willing to look past that, like whatever their principles might be. And so how much they're willing to forego those principles in order to like, say like, you're part of our team. You're not part of their team. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, with him, he's got this power and he's got this He but he's been, he's been acting like a child. You know, like he's not doing himself any favors. You know, he's the really smart guy in the room who wants everybody to know he's the really smart guy in the room. And he even talks, they even talk about this in the book. Like he just growing up just didn't understand why people didn't want to hear about their failures. He would just like, hey, you're wrong on this. You should do this. And they'd be like, you're a jerk. Right. And he would just Mm -hmm. be like, I don't understand. I thought I was doing him a favor. I thought I was trying to, I was helping him. Right. And he talks about how he got better at not doing that. 
and trying to shape himself into like a more complete person again, because he had this lacking family life growing up that maybe he should, that, you know, a lot of people are going to crave. A lot of people need a strong family circle to become a complete Mm -hmm. person. And he doesn't have that. So he's, he has to work on it as an adult. And, and I think he's probably still, you know, with his behavior, this is childish behavior and Mm -hmm. um, do yourself a favor be quiet and let everybody just watch that you're the smartest guy in the room, you know, as opposed to going out and picking fights with people and, and trying to be somebody that you're not like, you're not a populist leader. You're not from my class of people. You know, you didn't, you're not, you don't have the same struggle and pull yourself uh, up in the bootstraps. Right. Right. You know, like I couldn't get investors. Like he got investors. I didn't have that type of opportunity. Now you could say, well, you didn't go to college. You didn't do these things. Again, opportunity. Was I meant to be able to do those things? Was I guided in those directions? You know, not everybody is. Some people have to start as an adult and figure that stuff out. So, um, and I think he would be better served if he recognized that and was honest with people and tried to work quieter. <laughs> like a mouse, a little bit like a mouse. A little bit like a mouse. <laughs> you know, it is Christmas. All is quiet. Nothing. Not a mouse's turn. Not even a mouse. Um, Elon, the persons and feelings. So there was one, there was one quote in here. Let me get to this one. One seventeen, Cause I think it, it really, I think it's ties into what I was just saying here. Well, if I can put a plug in for my friend, he wrote an op-ed about mice yeah. and sort yeah. of Christmas and like just the idea that the mouse is a very gentle person that can help kind of guide you or, gently as a, like a conscience might and i think the way you're describing elon is much more like an elephant that's just kind of bowl through and knock you over and, you, and then you, you know the elephant's like why are you upset that i knocked you over and i think you know in a certain sense like um it's good to admonish people if you think that they need correction um but they're you kind of have to understand people and people don't like being corrected and so you have to kind of not necessarily lie to them, but you have, you have to be diplomatic in how you come to that and sort of work slowly in an order to make sure that that change that you're trying to make is um, actually, you know, has an effect on someone. Right. And, and I talked about, you know, some of his behavior, but, you know, like this said, there's stories on both sides of the line, right? And, and the story changes mm-hmm. as he gets older, which is a good thing. Like you want the story to change as somebody gets older. It means they're learning from their mistakes. It means they're a conscious, caring human being, which is what you want to see when they have that much power. Um, and so this is a story about during the SpaceX days, and they were uh, – one of the engineers had blown up two engines in one day, and he said uh, – I told Elon we could put another engine on there, but I was really, really frustrated and just tired and mad, and I was kind of short with Elon. I said, we can put another effing uh, thing on there, but I've blown up enough S for today. He said, okay, all right, that's fine. Just calm down. We'll do it again tomorrow. Um, The coworkers at the office later reported that Musk had been near tears during this call after hearing the frustration and agony in in Mueller's voice. And so this was a moment where his employee was at his wit's end. He was struggling. He was frustrated. And instead of Elon being angry and and at that, at the failures of that day, Mm -hmm. he went, Hey, it's okay. We'll get back to it. And that's it. That's good leadership, right? Like sometimes a leader has to push people to feel that way. And sometimes Mm -hmm. a leader has to pull people away from feeling that way, you know, because that's how you get like the most out of people. And so if you're analyzing Elon Musk, 
who is this person? Can he do this, these things that he wants to do? He has good leadership skills. He understands mm -hmm. people. He's able to navigate these things. And I think that's, it's good and bad because it means he has the power, right? He can do what he wants, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> but he's democratizing Twitter. So not my, not my democratizing. That's, that's but, the problem. Yeah. So um, now what is, what is the big thing with Twitter? You know, the argument over the last few years is about speech, right? Um, right. And what can you say? What can't you say? Uh, does it follow right. a particular line of thought? Yeah. And so Twitter's obviously kind of messed with the algorithms. We've seen that to kind of either pump up or push down certain mm -hmm. topics. And now um, I saw this, a friend sent me this Daily Mail article with this, I believe it was a Stanford professor. And he's got this list of words that he suggests we don't say anymore because they're harmful. Um, did hate speech. Is it hate speech? Hate Not speech. quite. Uh, yeah. So I took offense with some of these words. Maybe offense isn't the right word, right? <laughs> he wants to, he suggests that we shouldn't say the word American. And I'm just, you know, and the idea with the uh, behind this is because it's, it's insensitive. It discriminates about against South and Central America. I don't, I don't, I don't understand how it does that. Like, how does a word hurt you just for not including you? You know, like, no, I don't think it does. I mean, like, uh, there's obviously context around it. Like you're talking about, well, so uh, for more context, like I got to get a chance to go to Mexico when I was in high school and on a summer project. And I remember hearing that the the Mexicans there didn't appreciate when we called ourselves Americans because they, they too thought that, they, well, that we're part of the Americas. But I think that's kind of in the context of like, you're not in your country. You're not in the United States of America. Um, but I imagine if you're on the Stanford campus, like the context is you're in the United States of America and you're talking about fellow citizens. So you can kind of assume that someone is going to be uh, part of your tribe, if you will. And you can also kind of assume that there's sort of that um, camaraderie and that, that uh, in a certain sense, tribalism, like we're all from the United States of America, we're all Americans. Um, but I don't think it's exclusionary to the fact that like, that means that someone from, if you're in South America and you say, well, you're not Americans. I, I, like it, I just think like, it is so um, inhumane when you try to strip away something and you try to take away the richness of a word. And I think that's where you're, where you're offended at. Like it's, it's a, just because you say so you're, you're an American doesn't mean you're trying to exclude other people. You're just saying like, I am an American and sort of colloquially we come to understand like when you talk about that in the United States of America, you mean that you're talking about other citizens of the United States of America. Like there's a, there's an inherent um, sort of unwritten assumptions in, in that. And, but it, when you try, and that's just like all of human thought is having unwritten assumptions behind everything. Well, and, yeah. and, it's intent, right? It, you know, and, and so like this article, I mean, I'll be honest, I don't even know if it's real, right? Like, is there really a Spanish Stanford? Oh, it's real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this is, is very real. That's scary. But like, I guess my, my, my point of it is words change over time, right? Mm -hmm. Like as a society, we shouldn't be investing our time and energy into like selecting which words are hurtful during the moment, right? Is we should just work to be better people and treat other people with respect. And like, mm -hmm. that should be our focus about helping better communication, helping understand words, you know, cause sometimes 
the word is hurtful just because people don't understand what it means, you know, in a lot of circumstances, or it's used in a context that people don't understand. Um, and I think that a Stanford professor should would better be served finding a a curriculum that helps educate people on communication skills, mm -hmm. as opposed to trying to eliminate the words that help us communicate better, you know, and, and right. Um, you know, I was talking to somebody the other day and um, I mentioned, I, I can't remember the, the two words that were used, but I used the word faction and the, um, somebody was like, oh, you know, that's, that's a negative word. And I'm like, I don't think it's a negative word. I think it's like, it's a clean slate word. Nobody's used that word in such a long mm. time. It's new. I'm the first one using it. Like the blue ocean word. Yeah. Like I'm def like, I'm defining, I'm not defining it. I'm, I'm using it the way our founders did. Right. But like people around me, I notice that start have started to use that word, you know, they hear it. So they're using it too. Same reason I am. I, I started using it because I started reading the Federalist Papers and Madison's and it just became natural. And mm -hmm. so, you know, words come and go, meanings change and flow, you know, <laughs> um, yeah. so you, why are we wasting energy with this? Why is somebody that's supposed to be an intellectual, look, your job is to like help society. I don't know what you think you're doing over there by trying to ban words or whatever, but that's not it. Um. <laughs> well, part of it is because it's a, it's a specific worldview and you could say it's Marxist or something, but it's like, it's an ideology where we're trying to signal our beliefs to other people. And so by removing words, that's in a certain sense, um, you know, in the same way, like, you know, a Christian might carry a cross on them, like that shows that you believe that you're a Christian or something. By removing words, that kind of signifies to other people that where you stand ideologically and where you could you can be. So if anything, it's more of it's going back to tribalism and binaryism. It's an us versus them. It's sort of like it's an easy way. Like you've set the ground rules. Like if you're going to be part of my tribe, you're not going to use these words. Right. And if you're going to use these words, then I can assume that you haven't read the right literature. You're not part of my tribe. You don't belong with me. And so I'm going to shun you or try to uh, convert you or something to, to come along to my worldview. Like, I mean, at the end of the day, that, that's really what it's about. It's um, yeah. as much as they say it's about her feelings and stuff. It's not about feelings because you're right. If, if it was about feelings, you'd try to find a way to commute to, to uh, bring people together and sort of say, well, you know, we meet it in this context, not in this other context. But when it's very much like, no, you can't say these words almost like the magical incantations or something like, you know, if you say these, these incantations, you're going to summon demons, which is, which is absurd. And so I, there's a great book that I read this summer, like on this topic, right. And it's uh, the rise of the new Puritans, I believe. I think it's. Mm. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, Noah Rothman. Noah Rothman. That's it. Okay. I was like, look, I'm looking over for it. I, it's probably in the back stack, but like I read it over the summer and like, and that's the idea. That's, that's kind of what you're talking about where it's like, they create all these rules, they strip away all these words, and they say, you have to agree with these things, or I can assume you are the enemy. You're not part mm -hmm. of our, essentially, church, right? Like, yeah. maybe they don't have an ideological deity that they're bowing down to, but the deity is the rules, right? It's like, you have well, the to- The deity is power. It's, 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 it's power. power. It's, yeah, we worship power, and this is this right. is our way to get power, is to band together. Yep, 100%. Um, which is scary, you know, to a mm -hmm. degree, because like, you know, when I read history and, you know, that's one of the things like people are like, what did you pick up most from history? And I go, well, uh, your ability to speak is the most important thing you have, like hands down. You know, everybody's like, you know, the second minimum is there in case the first minimum doesn't work. And I'm like, the first minute has to work. 
Like that's it. Like yeah, that it yeah, has yeah. to work. If it doesn't work, it doesn't matter what you could do. Like they got nukes people, you know, like, I mean, come on. It's the first amendment has to work um, plain and simple. And, you know, for a long period of time, it was the right that was always trying to squash speech. And now you've got the left trying to squash speech. And the second they team up together, we're totally, you know, screwed. Bad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so how was Christmas? How was your parenting at Christmas, John? Uh, it was a, it was a, an exercise in, in parenting for sure. <clears throat> I mean, um, we tried to be a little light on the presents this year and sort of have a very much theme where, I mean, like our kids just don't treat their toys like trash, which is really unfortunate. And so um, they never really last long. So we've, we've always tried to like focus on like books and games and sort of things that are good for the, the family as a whole. Um, and then my, my grandparents, my uh, parents and, and in-laws and stuff they just shower the kids with toys so you know it, it makes up for that um but it was uh it was really good it was a nice time for, to meet with family like went to church saturday night um at the, the the quote midnight mass but it started at 10 30 and ended at midnight um but like all the kids mostly hung through that and then um it was just a kind of a lazy sunday and i did a lot of cooking i made a bush de noel uh, which has become a tradition in our house and it was good and you yeah, I had a uh, I had a good Christmas. My Christmas was different. It's like it's typically like my most exciting holiday. I go crazy on buying gifts for everybody. I I pay attention to people. I know what they want. I want to go out and get the perfect thing. And then I'm also I'm just a child. So I go into the toy store and I come out with stuff I did not plan to buy. Um and I noticed that I'm kind of like I create this large shadow around me. You know, like so like when I notice this with with my wife, we go Christmas shopping. And, you know, we're on a budget still, and it, it'll always come down to a few things like she wants to get, I want to get, and we can't get all of them, right? And I noticed that we tend to always get what I want. And it's not because I'm like, hey, we have to get this. I'm typically like, okay, cool, let's do your thing. But she's like, she insists, right? She almost doubts herself immediately. And so this year, one, I'm out of time. I got, I'm running three businesses. Like, I don't have time to Christmas shop. I love my family, right? But I just don't have time. And so I like two birds with one stone, right? Which is, by the way, on that, uh, we need to ban that phrase list from Stanford. Um, I figured I'll get out of the way. I'll give my op- my wife the opportunity to do Christmas the way that she wants to do, you know? And then um, at the same time, I get to focus, keep on focusing on work. And it was really great because my wife is very creative and different than I am. And I love being able to see what she comes up with. And sometimes I don't because she like, She's like, oh, I don't, you know, uh, Jeff, let's just do Jeff's idea. And I'm like, um, but she, she, she nailed it with the kids. And we've got the twins that are six and then Julian Oliver that are 13. They're both hit these transition stages. Mm-hmm. They're both, you know, now they're teenagers. Now they're pre-K. This is the, this is like setting the precedent for going forward for like the next, you know, to the next transition. And my kids, they loved it. My wife focused on games and clothes uh mm-hmm. you know like for the older kids um they got my my son was really excited he got this geo rock set um he got this oh, nice. lego led thing um he has to do it with me we just finished our nasa saturn 5 today actually um no video game. like it lights up is that what the, the led thing yeah the Bat- batman thing and it's like no video games very little you know glitz and glamour to the whole thing mm-hmm. Um, and my kids were the best thing I, I thought was they were so respectful to everybody else. 
like all the family mm-hmm. members. Uh, my twins went up and gave my grandmother, who's you know, nearing uh, nearing eighty or past eighty actually, um, and gave her this big hug. And I just saw her her smile, right? And it's like those moments, like my kids appreciated the gift. They said thank you on their own, and I'm like, way to go, mm-hmm. you know, way to go, kids, way to go, mom. You know, my grandmother's really excited. It's you know, it's just it's heartwarming. It's it's nice. Um, I got some nice things, you know, but that's like, that's all secondary, right? It's the experiences, it's the families, it's being glad that even though my kids act a little spoiled and entitled inside my house, at least they're being respectful outside. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. It's, it's always good to hear like, oh, your kids are so well behaved. Uh, if only you were at my house 24 seven, you would know. Yes. yes. <laughs> oh man. All right. Well, uh, that is coming to the end of our show. Uh, there's a few things I wanted to go over. We had a couple articles drop this week. Uh, so very exciting. John's wife, uh, Katie, has joined writing for Politics and Parenting, and she wrote a very gripping story um, about her her, her uh, experience with, with giving life. Um, and it's, it's really great. Go out and read it. It's on our sub stack. Um, I put out an article yesterday about It's a Wonderful Life. I think I mentioned it earlier. I... Uh, I find this fascinating because I decided to write a who is George Bailey. I didn't write about the movie. I just wrote about who George Bailey is. And then you guys know how much I love ChatGPT. So I had ChatGPT write the same story. And then you can read both of them. And you can figure out, do you want computers writing for you? Or do you want people mm-hmm. writing for you? <laughs> um, well, you and- just got to, Jeff, what you just got to do is train the models to write just as you want to train them. You, you know, you spend th- years and effort training them up instead of training people to do it. And then eventually we'll all be able to live on spaceships and exactly uh, drink um, my tiles. And I actually, I wrote those articles or that article at a combination of two breweries. I think I mentioned it before, Great Main Brewery and Haymarket and um, Truvai Brewery, also in Haymarket. Great beer and great experience to be able to just sit and write in a public forum and like have cool people to talk to when I get like stuck and I need to have a conversation. (laughs) Um, Also, uh, January 21st, we've got our Madisonian Republican meeting come up, coming up. You can go to madisonianrepublicans.com and sign up. Make sure you get there. We've got limited space. You need to RSVP, um, try to get in as soon as possible so we can plan accordingly. Um, and then, of course, like, share, subscribe, you know, help the show, help us grow. Peace and love. <laughs>